How you doing? Join me in your Bibles, if you would, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Man died and went to heaven. Stood at the pearly gates. Peter said, why should I let you in? He said, well, I did my best to help other people. Peter looked and said, I really don't see a record of that. Can you give me an example? He said, well, I was driving down the road and I passed a small diner. Saw a group of hell's angels bothering a little old lady. They had knives and guns flashing. I could tell they were ready to beat her and rob her. So I pulled over, jumped out, grabbed the leader, spun him around, punched him in the face, and shouted, pick on someone your own size. Peter said, wow, that's impressive. We don't see that kind of courage much. Tell me, when did you say that happened? He said, about five minutes ago. I don't usually like jokes about heaven because for the most part they usually aren't funny and they're often misleading because Peter isn't going to be at the pearly gate in heaven and there's only one way into heaven and it isn't punching a hell's angel. According to a recent poll by Pew Forum, 74% of Americans believe in heaven. 64% believe they will go to heaven, and 54% believe if you do enough good things, you'll get in. Conversely, 59% of Americans believe in hell, but listen, only one half of 1% expect to go to hell upon their death. So Americans are fascinated with the idea of heaven. Most of them just don't know what the Bible says about it and how to get there. I did a search online this week. Found out that the most popular books about heaven are children's books. Why are children's books most popular? Well, because children ask so many questions. And they ask their parents about heaven, and their parents don't know. So they go get a book and read it to them. The three most popular books, children's books on heaven, were these. A book by Cynthia Ryland called The Heavenly Village. It's a series of eight short stories of residents in the heavenly village. The heavenly village is a waiting place for, quote, reluctant spirits who don't want to go to heaven yet. One is a woman who can't bear to go to heaven until her beloved cats can join her. One is a doctor who worked so much that he neglected his son, and so he stays in the heavenly village and watches over his son at night. That's a cozy view of heaven. If you don't want to go, or you're not finished on earth, you just go to a way station, a kind of cozy, quaint little village where you hang out. There's also a book by Nicholas Allen titled Heaven. 
It's a conversation between a little girl named Lily and her dog Dill who is dying. Dill is comfortable with dying because he knows he's going to like it up there. He believes heaven is full of bones with lots of meat left on them, hundreds of lampposts, and foul-smelling odors all over the ground. In Lily's mind, heaven is home to a carnival where all the rides are free and you're never sick once. They're having a conversation about heaven. And their conversation is interrupted when Dill is led away by angels, dogs with wings. Lily is overwhelmed with sadness for several days until she finds a stray. And with Dill looking down from heaven, she seeks to give her new dog heaven on earth. Bones, lampposts, and stink. I guess the application is you get to make heaven whatever you want. And you should try to make your life here a carnival. Third book is called What's Heaven? It's by Maria Shriver. Yes, Arnold Schwarzenegger's wife. It's a mother-daughter conversation about heaven And the little girl asks some really good questions about heaven, but the answers are sadly lacking. And I'll share a couple of them with you in a minute. You know, these books left me wondering, why do children seem to be asking all the questions about heaven? And why do adults have such lame answers And why are so many adults resolved to have their view of heaven determined by what they heard when they were four years old? Or just distract themselves from the subject by telling jokes all the time? So today I want to answer some questions about heaven. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul tells us that he went there. Look at verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body, apart, whether in the body or apart from the body I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Now, Paul refers to this incident in the third person. But when we read on, we see in verse 7 that he's referring to himself. We'll try to explain why he does that next time along with the details out of this passage. But this morning, I simply want us to gather some answers about heaven. First question, what will heaven be like? Jesus said in John 14, 3, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Heaven is a place. It's not a state of mind. 
Jesus uses spatial terms. A place where I am, there you will be also. Heaven is a place. You say, well, where is it? Well, Paul calls it here in verse 2, the third heaven. Scripture, Scripture uses that word heaven three ways. Number one, it uses the term to refer to the earth's atmosphere. The Bible talks about the Lord opening the heavens to send rain. That's the atmosphere around our earth. The the Bible talks about the birds of the heavens. They fly in the atmosphere just around the earth. So that word is used as of the atmosphere around the earth. Secondly, it's used to refer to the universe when it talks about the stars of the heavens. So it's used of the atmosphere around the earth, the clouds and, and the oxygen. It's used of the entire universe, but it's also used a third way. When the Bible talks about your Father who is in heaven. When it talks about our Father who art in heaven. This is the only use of this term, the third heaven in Scripture. And what we can assume is that Paul is saying, I went past the first heaven, our atmosphere, and I went past the second heaven, which is the universe, and I went into the third heaven, which is the dwelling place of God. Now, what's it like? Well, notice the other term he uses to describe it. And that's in verse 4. He calls it paradise. That's a Persian word that means the garden of the king. It's the same word used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament to talk about the Garden of Eden. It's the same word that Jesus used on the cross when he said to the thief next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. In Revelation 2.7, it's called the paradise of God. And there we're told that the tree of life that used to be in the Garden of Eden is now in heaven in the paradise of God which suggests to us that it has the characteristics of a garden. Now, when you read this passage and you see that Paul went there, you might expect Paul to be telling us all about what, like, you know, what heaven looked like. It had granite tops, you know, it had, had this, it had that, and describing heaven, but he doesn't do that. John went to heaven. In Revelation chapter 4, the first thing he saw in heaven was, you know what it was? Went to heaven. First thing he says he saw was the throne of God. And he says everything else was around the throne. So he saw the throne. He saw other things. He saw a sea of crystal. He saw a rainbow. He saw thunder, lightning, the elders, the angels, but they were all around the throne. What's that tell us? Tells us that God is the centerpiece of heaven. Tells us that the thing that makes heaven heaven is that God is there. You say, that throne sounds a little scary. It's a throne. It's got a sea of crystal in front of it. It's got a rainbow over it. It says there's thunder and lightning bolts around it. Kind of intimidating. 
But John walks up to the throne, and guess what he finds on the center of the throne of the universe? The Lamb, standing as if slain, which tells us the throne is not intimidating. At the center of the throne of the universe is self-sacrificing love. It's Jesus Christ. It's the extension of grace to you and me. We need to draw near to his throne that we may find what? Grace. You know, we talk about heaven as a place way off somewhere where we go and live forever. But if you look carefully at Scripture, actually, heaven is going to come down. The Bible tells us when we die, we go to heaven, we go to the paradise of God, but that's really a temporary thing. When Jesus comes back, he's going to bring us with him back to this earth, The Bible says we're going to reign with him for a thousand years. At the end of that thousand years, he's going to destroy this earth and this heaven, and he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth, and there's also going to be a new Jerusalem. Now, when Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, it seems to me the place he's preparing is this new Jerusalem. You say, how are we all going to live in one city? Well, it's interesting, the city... If you walk from one side of the city to the other, it takes you 1,500 miles. Gives a new meaning to across town. You can read about that city in the last two chapters of the Bible, but you, you know what's interesting? You know what's in the city? The throne of God. This city comes out of heaven down to the new earth. And the throne of God is there, which tells me that God is dwelling in the city, which makes it heaven because heaven is only heaven because God is there. Also tells us in that city there will be no temple, no church building because he'll be the temple. It tells us we'll have no need of the sun or the moon because it will be illumined by the glory of God and its lamp will be the Lamb. So what is heaven like? I like the way Jesus depicts it in John 14. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. Now the King James, unfortunately, translates that mansions. And people have run with that. You know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have a mansion. What's a mansion look like? Well, it's on about 20 acres. I got a fence around it, no trespassing. Got my own little space over here with my big mansion, and I'm going to live there in seclusion. No. Where is your mansion? Where is your room? It's in the Father's house. You see, the picture heaven's giving is it's one big house, and we're in it. And what makes it exciting? Not that it's a huge mansion, but that it's the Father's house. He's there. And we're there with Him. It's the garden of God. We will be dwelling in the place where He is. Now, it's really kind of futile for me to sit up here and describe heaven because what's interesting is, if you look at verse 4, Paul says... I was caught up into paradise, and I heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. So if I start getting carried away, 
I'm going to be drawn back in by the fact that Paul wasn't even permitted to tell what was going on there. God's got his own secrets sometimes. And he says it was inexpressible. So let me ask another question, or I'll let you ask the question. What will I look like? What will I look like in heaven? Well, you won't have this body. This body is temporary. This body is decaying. Stick around as long as I have, and you'll figure that out. This body is dying. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul calls this body a tent, and he calls your new body a house. What do you do in a tent? I don't know. I never stay in one. <laughs> but you, take, you stay in a tent for a few days, max. Then you go back and get cleaned up. A tent is temporary. This body is temporary. But when we leave this tent, we have a house, which is permanent. Paul uses two terms in 1 Corinthians 15 to describe our earthly body. They are perishable and they are mortal. What do we call perishables? Those are the things we buy at the store that have a date on them. They're going to be bad on such and such a date. You find something in your pantry that's out of date, what do you do with it? You throw it away because it's perishable. He uses two terms, perishable and mortal, to describe this body. But he uses two two terms to describe our new body, and those are imperishable and immortal. As a teenager, Joni Erickson had a spinal cord injury that paralyzed her for life. She hasn't let that slow her down. In spite of her handicap, she's ministered to millions of people through her books and through her artwork. She can't use her arms and hands, but she paints with a paintbrush in her mouth. Beautiful pictures. As she considered the idea of a resurrection body, here's what she writes in her book, Heaven, Your Real Home. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone spinal cord injured like me No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. What will your new body look like? The popular children's books tell you you'll be an angel. No. It's better than that. Philippians 3.21 says we will have a new body just like Jesus' resurrection body. What was his resurrection body like? He told his disciples in his resurrection body in Luke 24.39, Touch me. I'm not a spirit. I have flesh and blood. He's in a body similar to this body, but a glorified, eternal, permanent body body different from this body. 
You say, well, if we're all like Jesus, does that mean we'll all look alike? No. Remember when Jesus went up on the mountain and was transfigured in front of the disciples? Guess who showed up? Moses and Elijah. How did they know they were Moses and Elijah? I always say they wore name tags. That's not the point. The point is they were Moses and Elijah. That you could tell they were Moses and Elijah. They were still Moses and Elijah. They, they looked like themselves, but they were in glorified bodies. God's too creative to have us all look the same. You say, well, will I be reuni- reunited with my loved ones? Of course you will. That's the whole point of 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 to 18. It talks about Jesus coming back and it says, comfort one another with these words. Because they were worried about people who had died. They were thinking they're not going to make it. And he says, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the clouds. Heaven will be a joyful reunion. You say, well, I just have a question. It's not about me. It's about a friend. But will I be married in heaven? Yes and no. You won't be married to your spouse. Jesus makes that clear in Matthew twenty-two, thirty. He says there'll neither be married, you'll neither be married nor given in marriage, but you will be like the angels. Not not angels, but like the angels in that regard. That's why you say at your wedding, till death do us part. Some of you guys are romantic. You tell your wife, I'm going to love you. I'm going to be with you forever. Well, marriage is for this lifetime. But you will be married. Your husband will be Jesus Christ. And we are his bride. And we are all part of his family. So the idea that when you get to heaven, you're going to go to the mansion and you're going to hang out with your family and keep everybody else out is a false view of heaven because in heaven, what's going to happen is your family's going to get bigger. And I can't wait to get to heaven and fellowship with some people up there. I can't wait to sit down and talk to David and Daniel and Moses and Noah and Paul. That's part of the joy of heaven will be that kind of fellowship there. You say, will I see and remember what happened on earth? The martyrs in heaven in Revelation chapter 6 remember what happened to them on earth. And they're very interested in what is happening currently on earth. In Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back, he brings those in heaven with him. I think we have to know what's going on. He can't just say, let's go. Where are we going? We're going to know what's going on on earth. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 says, we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. I take that to mean there are people that have gone on ahead that are cheering me on today. The rich man in Luke chapter 16 could see Lazarus from his vantage point in Hades.
You say, well, Dan, if, if I will know what's going on earth, on earth and I, if I will know what's going on in hell and I will know that some of my loved ones are in hell, how am I going to rejoice in heaven? That's a great question. I know that some of my loved ones are in hell right now. And yet I can still rejoice. When we get to heaven, we're going to have a clearer view of God's perspective. And God lives with the fact that people are in hell for eternity. So we'll be able to accept that more readily and understand it's just, it's right, it's proper, and it's loving. That's why I like the verse in Revelation. It says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. It doesn't say there will be no tears in heaven. It says, when we have those tears, he's going to wipe them away. You say, well, I know everything. No. I know people on earth that know everything. But you won't know everything in heaven. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says we will know clearly and we will know fully, but we won't know comprehensively. How could I know everything about our infinite God? Angels are in heaven. Do they know everything? No. 1 Peter 1, 12 says they are longing to look into some things that they don't know about. One of the things that will happen in heaven is that we will spend eternity learning more and more about God. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7 says, In the ages to come, he will show us the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, we can never fully know God's grace because it's limitless. It's infinite. It just keeps coming. And we're going to learn more and more and more in the ages to come about his grace and about who he is. You say, well, what will I do with all my time in heaven? I mean, forever. Maria Shriver says in her book that heaven is a beautiful place where you can sit on soft clouds and talk. That's good for about two hours. Why would God make such an intricate body for us to dwell in if all we're going to do is sit on soft clouds and talk? A lot of people are apathetic about heaven because they have the idea it's going to be boring. John Eldridge in his book, Journey of Desire, said, Nearly every Christian I've spoken with has some idea that eternity is an unending church service. We have settled on an image of the never-ending sing-along in the sky. One great hymn after another, forever and ever, amen. And our hearts sink. Singing forever and ever, that's it? That's the good news? And then we sigh and feel guilty that we aren't more spiritual. We lose heart and we turn once more to the present to find what life we can. Heaven is not an unending church service. Even though I like church services. 
That's probably because I get to talk. In fact, Revelation 21, 22 says, there is no temple because we won't have to be drawn to God. God's going to be living there with us. Worship will be a way of life. It will be continual praise coming out of our mouth to the Lord. Will there be activities in heaven? Of course there will. Revelation 22.3 says we will serve him. There will be work in heaven. Work is not bad. God did work in Genesis chapter 1. Work was established for us before the fall. Work didn't come as a result of the curse. Work became difficult because of the curse. In fact, Revelation 21.5 says there'll be no night, which means you won't have to sleep. You'll have continual energy to work 24-7 if you want to. And Revelation 22.5 says that part of our work will be reigning. That's amazing to me. God has decided we will actually help him run the universe. We're promised in places that we will sit on Jesus' throne with him and reign with him. He tells a parable. I think it's in uh, Luke, Luke 19. Talks about the faithful servants were told, you're going to have authority over ten cities. You're going to have authority over five cities. You see, it seems to me that that salvation is a gift, but there are rewards that God is going to give us, and some of those rewards are going to involve reigning over more and more places. Some of us might simply be reigning over one city like Allenville or something. Sorry I threw that in. Revelation 14.3 says we will rest in heaven. You say, well, how can we rest if we don't need to sleep? How did God rest? He didn't need to rest. He, he created for six days and then he rested on the seventh day. What's that tell us? It says he did, that means he did something else. We're going to do something else besides just work and rain. I kind of look at it this way. I mean, you look at Jesus. Jesus was in his resurrection body. It's different than this body because what did he do? He ascended up into heaven without a spacesuit. Went right past this atmosphere and up into heaven. That tells me you can get around in your new body. I love to travel. When I get to heaven, I'm planning to explore the universe and beyond. In fact, in the New Jerusalem, it says there are trees, there are rivers, there are streets. There will be all kinds of activity going on. I like sports. I plan to play sports. The Bible doesn't say there's anything wrong with sports. Paul uses sports analogies. Sports is wrong when it becomes your idol, but it's not wrong. In fact, I challenge you to a game of hoops when we get there. You'll be able to dunk. Randy Alcorn captures it this way in his book, Heaven. And if you want a book on 
heaven, it's heaven, by Randy Alcorn. He says, it's the place where we, we will be fully at home. We will no longer be homesick for Eden. We will experience at last all that God intends for us because the joys of heaven will overflow from the multifaceted wonders of God. Heaven will be endlessly fascinating just as God is infinitely fascinating. You say, well, Dan, I hate to ask this, but will we eat in heaven? Jesus cooked and ate fish and bread with his disciples after his resurrection on the shore in John 21. And I point out he cooked because real men cook. There is a wedding supper of the Lamb in heaven in Revelation 19.9. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a man who held a great feast and invited people to come. Heaven is not going to be a funeral. Heaven is going to be a feast. Somewhere along the line, we got the idea that hell's going to be a party, and heaven's going to be boring. That's a complete lie. Hell is going to be torment. Heaven is going to be a feast. It's going to be a joyful feast. Will there be animals in heaven? I could answer this further, but let me just throw out one simple proof that there will be. When Jesus comes back in Revelation 19.11, he's going to be riding on a white horse. There's at least a white horse in heaven. (laughs) What won't be in heaven... I'll let Randy Alcorn answer that. No death, no suffering, no funeral homes, no abortion clinics, no psychiatric wards, no rape, no missing children, no drug rehabilitation centers, no bigotry, no muggings, no killings, no worry or depression or economic downturns, no wars, no unemployment, No anguish over failure and miscommunication. No con men, no locks, no death, no mourning, no pain, no boredom. No arthritis, no handicaps, no cancer, no taxes. No bills, no computer crashes, no weeds, no bombs, no drunkenness, no traffic jams, no accidents, no septic tank backups, no mental illness, no unwanted emails. Close friendships, but no cliques. Laughter, but no put-downs. Intimacy, but no temptation to immorality. No hidden agendas, no backroom deals, no betrayals. Imagine mealtimes full of stories, laughter, and joy without fear of insensitivity, inappropriate behavior, anger, gossip, lust, jealousy, hurt feelings, or anything that eclipses joy. That will be heaven. One final question. How can I know for certain I'm going to heaven? Maria Shriver says in her book, if you're good throughout your life, 
then you will get to go there. If only one half of 1% of Americans think they're going to hell, that means over 99% think they're going to heaven. Jesus would beg to differ. He said, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Heaven is not our default destination. We don't go to heaven automatically. The jokes that start, the man died and went to heaven, assume that, but it's not true. What got Adam and Eve thrown out of the Garden of Eden? It was sin. And it's sin today that keeps you separated from God, separated from the paradise of God, banned from being there. And you can never do enough good things to compensate for your sin. The Bible says if you have broken one law, you have broken them all. Law is like a big mirror. You hit it in one place and break it and it shatters the whole mirror. You're guilty of it all. God's standard to get into heaven is 100% perfection. You have to be perfect and he doesn't grade on a curve. In case you think you are perfect, the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? The standard of perfection of God. You fall short. We like to say, well, I'm at 91%. I'm better than she is. She's only at 62. doesn't matter. You fall short of God's standard, which is perfection. And the Bible goes on to say, the wages of sin is death. So the default destination is hell. That's the bad news. But God has some good news. And that good news is that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Jesus died on the cross in your place. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. That's like saying, paid in full. Your salvation is accomplished. And then he rose to conquer sin and death. And now he lives today still saying, no one comes to the Father except through me. You can come back to God. You can get around that separation and return to your loving Heavenly Father, and it's all through Jesus. He is the door. He is the way. So in closing today, I want to ask you, have you come to Jesus Christ? Jesus said to the thief hanging next to him on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, he didn't die that day and go up to the pearly gates. and He wasn't asked, why should I let you into heaven? If he had, his answer would have been, I don't really have anything. I don't have any good deeds. Why? He's being executed. 
for his deeds. He was a thief. If he went to the pearly gates and they said, why should we let you into heaven? He would have to say, it's because I trusted that Jesus Christ is the king. I looked over at him next to me and he was bloody and dying. He didn't look like a king, but I said to him today, I said to him, when you come in your kingdom, remember me. I recognize that that bloody, dying man next to me, that perfect man is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And they would have said in heaven, we don't have a record of that. When did that happen? And he would have said five minutes ago. You see, that's all it takes. It doesn't take your works because they can't get you there. It takes you entrusting your life to Jesus Christ, just like that man did five minutes before he faced the end. Can you say that today? Can you say, I have entrusted my life to Jesus Christ? I have acknowledged him in my life to be my king and my Lord? If you have, then you can say with confidence today, I'm going to heaven. Not because of anything I did, but because eternal life is a gift of God that comes to me by simple faith in Jesus Christ. As you contemplate that question, whether you have done that today, we're going to close our service with a song. And if you are not sure about your relationship with Jesus Christ, and I invite you today to come forward, grab me and let's talk, because I would love nothing more and to show you how you can be sure that you have that relationship with Jesus Christ and to know that your future in heaven is secure. Let's stand as we close our service together.